you think a recession is more likely now than maybe you would have said six months ago? Well, I think most of our managers would say, would say that they are surprised at where they are now compared to how they thought they were going to feel six months ago at this point and in a lot of businesses. It's Wednesday, July the 12th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast that examines social, economic, political, and geopolitical issues. My name is Neil Ferguson, and I am an historian and the Milbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be moderating today's show, standing in for Bill Whalen, who is off this week. And joining me, as usual, are my fellow good fellows. Please welcome the noted economist, John Cochran, author of the monumental new book, The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level, which we're going to be talking about. And sitting next to him in Zoomland, the host of Hoover's Battleground series, and author of the book of that same title, the historian and strategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who served as National Security Advisor from 2017 to 2018. Uh, John and H.R. are also Hoover Senior Fellows. By the way, if you like this show and are watching us on YouTube, just take a minute to hit the like button and the subscribe button. It really helps us with the all-powerful, all-knowing YouTube algorithm and probably our uh, AI overlords too. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do some economics uh, this week. Uh, today was uh, inflation number day, and it's a great time I think to catch up with uh, with John and how he's thinking about the current state of the U.S. economy. We've been warned for what it feels like at least a year by many economists. The recession was imminent here in the United States, and yet according to the most recent jobs report, the economy added nearly 340,000 jobs in May. The unemployment rate remains at a pretty low level by historical standards at just 3.7%. And let's just say this isn't what you'd expect after more than a year of interest rate hikes and some quantitative tightening by the Federal Reserve. Now, this brings to mind a famous observation unconnected to economics in Adventures in the Screen Trade, his seminal book about Hollywood the screenwriter William Goldman famously coined the phrase, nobody knows anything. John, does Goldman's Hollywood dictum apply to economists today? I mean, where'd that recession go? <laughs> it does, actually. Um, we uh, actually know a whole lot less than we like to pretend in public, and certainly than our, our uh, policy-making colleagues at the Federal Reserve like to pretend in public. You know, just what is a recession is a little mysterious. Where they come from is a little mysterious. How and if monetary policy has anything to do with them is a little mysterious. And they're always going to be hard to forecast. I mean, this is one thing I think we do know. <laughs> we, we know the limits of our knowledge. You know, if you knew that the stock market would go down tomorrow, you'd go sell today and it would go down today. And so there's a that fundamental logic applies, I think, uh, to inflation. If you knew prices were going to go up tomorrow, you'd raise them today. Uh, and applies a little bit to recession, certainly applies to bank runs. If you knew there'd be a bank run tomorrow, you would go get your money today. Uh, so I think there's good reasons why recessions will always be hard to forecast. But this is really an interesting one that so many people said, here comes the recession, and it didn't come. Uh, is it just a matter of wait and see? I mean, are we just getting impatient? I've read somewhere that the average uh, time between the Fed hiking and a recession is nine months, and there's quite a lot of variance there. I mean, are people just getting impatient? I, do you sense that this recession is just a few months out, and at some point we'll be we'll be having a very different conversation? 
Well, the last thing I'm going to do with a year of economist failures to predict recession is stand up, <laughs> I stand up on my chair and say, here comes the recession. <laughs> I'm wise enough not to do that. Um, I, here, I think we can we can put our economist and historian heads together and try to see what's going on, especially thinking about the history of past recessions. Um, now, there's there's excuses. There's sort of the dog uh, ate my homework excuses. One, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates, but not yet of much above current inflation. When you think of the classic story for uh, uh, interest rates causing recessions, the early 1980s when uh, inflation was about 10% and interest rates went to 20%. So there's a lot of classic wisdom that thinks you have to get interest rates substantially above inflation to cause a recession or to bring inflation down. The real interest rate, the interest rate net of what people think will happen to inflation is who knows where it is because who knows what people expect of inflation, but it's not strikingly high. So one answer may be the Fed simply, it's, it's raised interest rates a lot, but has not substantially raised them above inflation yet. And so we may not really be in a restrictive uh, policy yet, uh, higher, real, uh, you know, higher real interest rates than inflation. Another possibility, which especially I turn to you as the author of, of great books on financial catastrophes, past recessions didn't just involve interest rates, they involved a tightening down of the financial system, a financial crisis, a contraction in credit, something of the sort. In the past, the Fed didn't pay interest on reserves. So raising interest rates was part of a clamp down on the monetary and financial system. Now we have immense amounts of reserves still, interest on reserves, raising interest rates alone may simply not have those effects, at least until it does something to collapse the financial system. How am I doing on dog ate my homework excuses so far? Well, there's, uh, there's another way of thinking about this. It's only a few months ago that we were talking about a potential banking crisis when banks like Silicon Valley Bank were blowing up. That seems to have gone away. Or is it just the quiet before the next phase of the banking crisis? Because I'm sure I've heard from some of our colleagues at the recent monetary policy conference that uh, our friend John Taylor organized that there's still a lot of problems out there, uh, a lot of banking uh, losses, particularly uh, on portfolios of bonds. I mean, do you sense that the banking crisis has gone away or is it a little bit like the recession just waiting to come back maybe after Labor Day? Well, definitely what I see in the course of history is recessions need a shock. They need something to go wrong and not just a steady increase in the overnight federal funds rate. And uh, a banking crisis is certainly the kind of thing that can go wrong, cause that contraction in credit that uh, unwillingness of people to take risks, that unwillingness to invest, that's really where you know, recessions show up. And, and uh, if this turns into a banking crisis, that could be the shock that we want. And there's certainly danger there. So lots of banks are still underwater just on their playing interest rate risks. Uh, and we're kind of waiting and hoping that uh, problems go away as, as often happens with banks is necessary. I worry a little about commercial real estate. There's a lot of uh, uh, businesses, there's a lot of buildings in San Francisco that aren't paying rent and the rents aren't paying loans. Those loans eventually turn over, that turns into problems for the banks. Uh, I would think that our great bank regulators had an eye on this, but they didn't have an eye on interest rate risks or who knows. And something could blow up around the world, HR's territory, uh, and that could be the next shock as well. Yeah, I wanna bring HR in at this point. You know, We kind of forget what a big shock the Russian invasion of Ukraine was uh, last year. And it was 
let's say only three months later or four months later that inflation hit its high in the US at 9%. And we just got this new inflation number as, as we were preparing to go on the air, which saw headline inflation uh, came in at 3%, core down below 5 to 4.8%. I mean, those are, I think, pretty good numbers from the vantage point of the Fed. But before we go to that, HR, could there be some other geopolitical shock, some other war that we're not expecting that could create a whole set of new supply side shocks? Anything out there that could be a little like Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Or is it all quiet on all fronts? Well, it's unquiet on all fronts, Neil. I mean, I, I think that uh, there could be a number of shocks that could really generate a great deal of inflationary pressure associated with you know, con, uh, constrained uh, supply lines associated with energy or food. You know, we've been talking with our colleagues about the dangers associated with the Zaporizhian nuclear plant, for example, and the effect that that would have on 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 food supply, for example, internationally. And then, of course, Iran has been quite active, you know, in in the, in the Middle East, and and we just saw them taking another tanker, even while they were they were contested by a U.S. naval vessel. So you could see the constraint uh, and and uh, uh, an interruption of energy energy supplies coming out of the you know the Straits of Hormuz or the Bab el Mandeb. And you know, we we are also very cognizant, obviously, of the threat from the People's Liberation Army in the South China Sea and vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, the effect that that could have on, which was something we've been talking about for quite some time, and Hoover will have an excellent report coming out next week on, on semiconductors and, and the threat associated with the interruption of semiconductor supplies uh, with associated with an attack on Taiwan uh, in particular, and that could that could actually bring us into a global depression, I think, if, in terms of that effect. And then, you know, Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea just released a string of threats last week and nobody really paid attention to it, you know, and, and then of course fired a missile recently, another long range missile. So I think that it, it's important for us to continue to highlight, you know, the, the theme of supply chain resilience, you know, and to, uh, to recognize that these growing geostrategic threats could interrupt any number of critical supply chains. And then I'd just like to ask John as, as well, you know, with this, this, this idea um, of, of reduced inflation rates, is that something we should be super happy about, or do you think there are other indicators we should look for to to to, to uh, help us uh, understand better maybe that this crisis is behind us? I mean, I know you have some some thoughts on what really caused inflation to begin with, and are those causes now in the past, or do you think they're still you know they still exist? Um, I want to take a little victory lap for fiscal theory of the price level, uh, because it tells us why we got inflation in the first place, the huge COVID blowouts. It also says inflation, that inflation goes away uh, largely on its own without aggressive uh, Federal Reserve action, because you basically inflate away the debt that you uh, printed up in the first place, but then, then it's over, as long as nothing bad happens. You know, all forecasts or about here's the way things play out if nothing bad happens. And then and then we listen to HR for all the bad things that might happen. Uh, but it is uh, kind of remarkable within the monetary doctrines that um, inflation did peak and seems to be easing even with interest rates substantially below the current inflation rate. So conventional theories don't say inflation goes away until you really get uh, high high interest rates. And, and that didn't happen and that is, uh, that that is sort of how, how fiscal theory understands the world. So I, I kind of see an easing of inflation, but quite possibly it gets stuck uh, substantially above two percent. And then we're not out of the fiscal. We've talked about our fiscal problems, and I would say also 
it's not just supply chains. When the next bad shock happens, that's if you that causes a recession. When it causes people just to pull back and be worried about you know making new investments, taking new risks, uh, not 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 just you know little problems in the or even big problems in the supply chain. And it also, uh, you know, next shock comes, what are our governments going to do? They're going to print up a lot of money, borrow a lot more. And we just saw that we're kind of at our limits for that. Uh, so in, inflation could, I think that the current thing is it, it, it kind of eases off slowly on its own, but then it could come back with the next shock. So I hate to uh, cause trouble uh, and risk provoking you, but uh, there was our old friend, Paul Krugman, and I use the term friend advisedly, uh, on Twitter today. Gotta say it, the original team transitory proposition was that inflation would subside without the need for a big rise in unemployment. Not looking so wrong now. So, John, are, are today's inflation numbers enough to uh, permit a victory lap by team transitory? That's the economists like Paul Krugman who said that the inflation would be transitory, they never quite specified how long transitory was, but uh, are they entitled to a victory lap too? Yeah, even the German hyperinflation after World War I was transitory. It went away sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Krugman is right for the wrong reasons. Uh, his team transitory, first of all, he, he was talking about you know months, not years earlier. But the story was the supply chain story that um, uh, there's there's a supply shock which then goes away and the inflation goes away. Now that's fundamentally a, a story about relative prices, not overall inflation. So that's why I think it was wrong. And it also is a story that says the price level should come back to where it was. Strawberries get more expensive in the winter because there's a supply shock. And then the price of strawberries comes back down again in the summer. We don't have a permanently higher price level. So we had inflation that went up, but left us a permanently higher price level. And the price of everything went up, not just the things that were under supply shocks. The wages went, went up, uh, uh, houses went up, uh, everything went up. So that is just, although it did eventually go away, it's a completely, what we've seen is does not conform to that supply shock, don't worry about it, relative price story. And the reason that I brought HR in at this uh, juncture is, is just to kind of remind people of some history. Uh, in the 70s, uh, the Fed would periodically uh, raise rates in response to inflation, then look like it had succeeded, inflation would come down, and then boom, something would happen like a war in October 1973, or the Iranian Revolution in 79. And so these, these different worlds of geopolitics, economics, and history, they're interact, uh, they interact in, in important ways. I, I still think the Fed is probably going to say, phew, it's working. Does that mean they're going to not do those additional interest rate hikes that they were talking about at Jay Powell's last press conference? Is this good enough for them to skip again? Skip is the new word for pausing, I gather. I, I don't, well, I don't know about the next meeting, but I do think um, everything I know about the Fed, as long as inflation is above 2%, you're in for rate hikes. Now, they might skip, they might pause, they might long and variable lag, they might the dog eat my homework and, and wait a while. But uh, it, they are not going to go back to low interest rates uh, and, and they are going to keep raising until we see inflation back to 2%. Hey, Neil, as the student in this, uh, in this macroeconomics class here, hey, I, and I'll just try to get my class participation grade up a little bit. 
Okay, can, can I ask you, what's the relationship uh, between all of this and, and unemployment? I did see something that seemed to be encouraging in terms of a reversal of the great resignation and uh, and a return of a number of people to the workforce. And unemployment numbers are quite low. Um, and, and I just like to hear your thoughts on, is that as positive an indicator as it seems to, to someone who's not educated in this field? I'm um, so, so glad you asked that because there are two big issues we need to cover before we can move on from our macro seminar. One, one is the labor market, which is definitely not behaving in ways that are familiar to, to students of recent economic history. The other is housing. We're going to come back to that. But John, one of the most striking features of, of the economy right now is the strength of the labor market. Uh, it's continuing to add jobs, maybe not quite as fast as before, but this is still a pretty hot labor market with a very low unemployment rate. And that's part of, I think, the reason why people don't sort of see or feel the recession. Uh, what they see is uh, real wages going up. Uh, they see job opportunities. In fact, there are just you know, way too many openings relative to the people who seem able to fill them. So help us understand why the labor market is like this. Well, it is, to HR's question, it is a great and good thing. <laughs> uh, we, we want employment, especially inclusive employment, whatever the current buzzword is for it. This is really helping uh, people with, uh, with, with lower opportunities. And, uh, but, you know, there's this great puzzle in economics, just how does the Fed raising interest rates do anything about inflation? And I got to warn you, it's a feature, not a bug. Now, I don't think it's largely wrong, but here's the Fed's mental model. We raise interest rates, that tightens financial conditions or something or other, that makes business less, and that raises unemployment, that lowers employment, and that through some Phillips curve magic is how inflation goes down. This is a feature, not a bug, uh, in the Fed's causal understanding of the world. And it's kind of weird. You know, why is the Fed so focused on labor markets? You know, we saw the price of chickens go up and Krugman's talking about supply chains and the Fed is the labor market, labor market, labor market. Well, that's their causal view of the world is that inflation comes through the labor market. So they're deliberately trying to slow down uh, labor markets um, on their way to inflation. Now, if inflation goes away without causing that recession in labor markets, that'll be a great and wonderful thing uh, and because, you know, we want people to have jobs. <laughs> There are all kinds of theories about why this labor market's a bit different. Obviously, immigration, certainly legal immigration, is down. Uh, there's some demographic dynamics at work, too. There are people who kind of left the labor force during the pandemic who have been at least reluctant to return. Uh, I mean, is this partly a structural story? Is this just not you know, your father's labor market? Uh, or are these just slow-moving changes as we emerge from the, the pandemic period? How, how should we think about this? Is it per a permanently different labor market, or, or is all this just gradually a kind of uh, transition out of a crisis? Yeah, well, there are, of course, always permanent differences going on. Um, I think we're, we're, uh, we're not in a recession. The economy is still kind of humming along. So unemployment, people looking for jobs is low. There are long-term problems. So uh, employment is really the most important thing. And, and the fraction of people who are working or looking for jobs is still low. It's only like 62%, I think. Uh, even prime age men, there's a, a, something like 10 to 15% who aren't working and aren't looking for work. So uh, we would like to see more people working overall, but that's long-term demographic, social program incentives, um, the problems like that. And we should 
the big economic question is long-term growth. It's not really business cycles coming and going. Uh, that's a whole other set of questions, but I, I always have to put in a plug for that. You know, get the long-run growth rate back up is the most important thing we should be thinking about. So housing, I mean, one way in which higher rates are supposed to act on the economy is that the costs of borrowing go up and the way that that impacts uh, the, the population most is because mortgage rates go up. And mortgage rates, sure enough, have gone up. And they've gone up by quite a lot relative to where they've been over the, the past 20 years or so. And yet it doesn't feel like uh, housing is rolling over. Um, in fact, even the most recent monthly data suggests there's been a slight pop in, uh, in house prices. So is this another weird, unfamiliar landscape, the housing market? Is it just not behaving like it should? It's different. And, and yes, in fact, most of the previous recessions have been largely about housing. Interest rates go up, housing construction collapses, uh, people who build houses are out of work. And that's one of the most important things. And that's just not happening. There's been a little ease off, but uh, housing is going a little bit of a puzzle. Right now, again, uh, a 6% mortgage isn't so bad if you think inflation is going to stick in at, at 4 to 5%. So the real interest rates really have not gone up that much. That's part of it. Uh, part of it is a lot of people who are buying houses are so expensive, only people who can pay cash are buying them. Um, and a lot of people are doing great because they got mortgages. Uh, part of why the economy is doing well, if you had a, a you know, 1%, 2% mortgage, 30-year fixed, you're in great shape right now with with interest rates this high, um, so that you know people staying in houses that are, are are easily affordable. Around the world is different. This is the U.S. is very weird with this 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And I was at a central banker conference a while a couple of weeks ago, where a lot of countries are are they're going to see much different dynamics because all their mortgages are adjustable rate. And when interest rates go up, people's house payments go up immediately next month. Uh, so that's a very different dynamic between the U.S. and the rest of the world. So a quick show of hands, who's got a mortgage amongst the good fellows? <laughs> and another show of hands, who has to refinance? I'm a some... Scot. We don't who borrow has... money. <laughs> Very prudent, John. Who has to refinance the mortgage in the next within, let's say, two years? Not me. So it looks like I'm the one who misjudged this the most uh, disastrously. <laughs> hey, it's, probably, to... it's, it's probably the only decent financial decision I've made in my life, Neil. And it was by, completely by chance. Well, <laughs> hats off to you, HR. This is, uh, this is a good time not to have to uh, go back to the bank and ask for a new rate. You won't like what you hear. I think that probably uh, is my cue to shut up about economics, which I obviously don't really understand that well. I have a segue that's going to get us from economics to geopolitics, and it's the debt, uh, John's favorite subject, the great driver uh, of inflation. And that, that there's no question that there's been an enormous increase uh, in the U.S. federal debt. I think over 10 years, it's gone from $16 trillion to over $30 trillion. And although, John, you said that some of that fiscal uh, overshoot of very recent years has been inflated away, uh, I would say not all of it. And if you look at the Congressional Budget Office projections, the debt ratio to gross domestic product is going to just keep going up. And the deficit is above 5% as far as the eye can see. So this is definitely not a fiscal problem that's gone away. But HR, I keep asking myself, you know, if the cost of that debt service is going up the way my mortgage is going to go up, next year, then presumably that's going to squeeze the stuff that we call discretionary expenditure in the federal budget, and that includes defense. How concerned are you 
about a potential squeeze on the resources available to the Department of Defense at a time when, as you just said, there are more geopolitical problems out there than just the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is this going to become a real constraint on U.S. foreign policy in the coming years, do you think? I think so, Neil, unless there is an effort to either increase revenue uh, or uh, or to take on non-discretionary spending and to, and to reform that in some way. And uh, and as interest payments go up uh, on the debt, it does squeeze discretionary spending. And, and a significant portion of that is, is the defense budget. And what makes it particularly dangerous is that as the threats are growing, as we've been discussing on Goodfellows across the last couple of years, you know, but but also we're in a situation where we have a huge bow wave of deferred modernization. And, and that modernization is critical because our principal adversary, other adversaries, have developed capabilities to take apart what they saw as our differential advantages. And these are kind of asymmetric capabilities like counter satellite uh, and, and, uh, and offensive cyber capabilities, electromagnetic warfare, long range precision missiles and tiered and layered air defense and and uh, and drone and and swarm drone capabilities and we have developed technological countermeasures right there's always a countermeasure right you have the submarine the sonar the bomber the radar the machine gun the tank the tank the anti tank missile but we have not yet really fielded those countermeasures to those countermeasures in sufficient capacity and also we've drawn our military down to a very small all volunteer professional force under the theory that we could have a bigger and bigger impact militarily over wider and wider areas with more exquisite and, uh, and platforms and fewer more exquisite platforms that were typically more expensive. And that model has shifted, as our friend Christian Bros and others have argued. We, we now really need more capacity and we need, we need, we need to deliver more military capability uh, at, at a lower price per platform. So anyway, it's, it's just a bad time to see this kind of constraint because of the threats and because a lot of the assumptions on which our defense budget has been based for many, many years have turned out to be flawed. I don't think it's that big an issue because um, defense is cheap. HR and his buddies are yeah. costing us, you know, 3% of GDP per year. This is, we're at a historic low in defense as a share of GDP. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of money, but the U.S. has a lot of money. Our, our deficit problems are, you mentioned the uh, unfunded social programs, the immense amounts of subsidies we're pouring down various rat holes. Um, I think we've got the money if we want to spend it on, on HR and his friends. The problems are, yes, supply chains. are in, How is it that we don't know how to produce artillery shells anymore? <laughs> that sort of problem. Well, that, that, that's the, the problem, isn't it? It's not so much that defense is cheap, it's that the defense budget is gradually getting squeezed and that has consequences. Let me give you a little fact to illustrate the point. I'm sorry, HR, this is a Navy fact, not an Army fact, but uh, there you go. So, un quote, under the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, Congress required the Navy to increase the number of its combat ships to 355 from fewer than 300 now as soon as practicable. But... The DOD's building plans don't make that feasible for decades, perhaps until the 2050s. Meanwhile, under China's more autocratic, less bureaucratic system, the PLA Navy, past the U.S. Navy in fleet size around 2020, now has around 340 warships and is expected to grow to 400 ships by 2025. Now, that's just one of dozens of examples one can give right. where the U.S. is meaningfully falling behind uh, China. 
And I think this could become a real issue, particularly if, as we've discussed on previous shows, there's a showdown over Taiwan. HR? Oh, it's it's even worse than that, Neil, than the statistics, because China tends to employ those those platforms uh, exclusively across the Indo-Pacific region. Of course, to to some degree as well uh, in the Indian Ocean and the Bob El-Mandeb. But the U.S. has more global responsibilities, as you can see, with you know, with the need to provide deterrent capabilities, along with other you know NATO fleets in Europe and in the Black Sea, and and uh, and and so forth. So I think that it's really um, it is is really a capacity issue, as with the number of naval platforms, as well as aircraft and capacity and land forces as well. We have you know continued to drive down capacity based on the assumption that exquisite capabilities would provide us with overmatch. Well, we've allowed our technology to to be transferred quite easily to China, uh, not only through intellectual property theft um, and espionage, but also willing transfer (laughs) from many U.S. companies uh, who have given uh, China the ability to to sort of match some of our technological capabilities uh, and apply them to the People's Liberation Army. So, you know, that we, we, you know, capacity, you know, size has a as a or qual, you know quantity has a quality all, all of its own. China is building a significantly l- large force, but also incorporating into that force uh, much more uh, you know much more exquisite technologies and capable technologies that have eroded you know our differential advantages. So I want to just turn uh, to the the war that's happening right now. Uh, just a f- couple of weeks ago, we were talking uh, uh, with some uh, enthusiasm about the situation in Russia following the abortive mutiny uh, by Mr. Prigozhin and his Wagner group. Uh, And I think some of us were hoping that this was a sign uh, that Russian resistance uh, to Ukraine's great counteroffensive might crumble. It doesn't look as if that's happening. Uh, HR, what's your assessment of the situation uh, in the war? is there any sign that this Ukrainian offensive could achieve a major breakthrough? Or are we looking as if we're stuck in a, a battle, a war of attrition? Neil, I'll just say, I don't know, but I'm still hopeful. And I believe that there's cause to believe that there could be a major breakthrough. And that's because, you know, d- defenses like the Russia has established uh, look strong until they collapse. And I think that those Russian forces under, under are under significant physical as well as psychological duress. I'm trying to imagine what it looks like from the vantage point of a Russian soldier when you see your leadership fragmented the way it's been. But then also the effect of the loss of so many junior leaders. I mean, there's a a new estimate out now on the numbers of Russians who have been killed in action since the reinvasion, and it's 50,000 killed in action. And typically, a rule of thumb is that there are three times that many who are wounded. I think it's probably more like two times because of how poor Russian medical support is to to their military, and but that's you know it's one hundred and fifty thousand casualties, and the initial invasion force was something like one hundred twenty thousand, right? So, and if you think about the conscripts, you know the Russian army we should say is bigger than it was when the reinvasion started, based on the conscription, but these are poorly trained replacements, and you can't pull somebody off the street and make them a platoon leader and a company commander, or, and, and expect them to lead competently. So I, I think that combined with I think what is a smart approach by by the Ukrainian armed forces to not throw everything into an offensive until they've prepared the battlefield with these probing attacks, trying to get uh, trying to get the Russians to reveal some of their 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 high uh, you know their their high payoff targets you know for from the Ukrainian perspective, you know for example um, you know like their artillery uh, forces 
uh, for, uh, and and uh, long-range rocket artillery, uh, as well as their command posts, some of their logistics formations. So I think that that once the Ukrainians can breach these these obstacles and and restore mobility to the battlefield, you know, this is kind of a World War One situation almost, you know, and and uh, and then force the Russians out of the prepared positions. That's where I think the Ukrainians will have a significant advantage, and uh, to isolate the Crimean Peninsula. And that's when I think you have a fundamental change in the military situation that could then bridge into some some sort of a, a vision toward the end of the conflict. It's World War One with drones, though, isn't it? I mean, we've got this yeah. uh, familiar pattern of, of lines of defense, trenches, all very much uh, out of 100 plus years ago. But what's novel is the use of, of drones, and the Ukrainians have been very innovative in this area. I heard a fascinating presentation uh, by Eric Schmidt on this. You may have read his piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week. Uh, how far do you assess that as a major change in the nature of war, HR? You're somebody who's you've been in combat. Uh, you, you know what war is like. Uh, you've written eloquently on it. But this looks like a new kind of war in which if nothing else, the reconnaissance capabilities have become much, much more accurate. How big a change is this? Well, I think it's a very significant change in the character of warfare. I don't think it changes the nature of war. I think what you've seen is 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 the ubiquity of, of these this drone capability uh, really uh, creating a condition in, in which all forces on the battlefield have to act as if they're in visual range of the enemy. Right. And that and that requires you to take particular countermeasures, dispersion, concealment, intermingling with civilian populations, but also deception, uh, as well as developing technological countermeasures to drones. And there are a number of those that are being developed and and fielded now by uh, by certain you know, traditional defense companies, but some of the newer defense companies. And this uh, this involves electromagnetic warfare capabilities where you can interrupt the signals, for example, between drones and, and the stations to which they have to disseminate their, their data. Uh, but also there's some new directed energy systems that are quite that are quite capable. I mean, you, you, these drones are very lightly uh, constructed oftentimes. And and a, and a laser, you know, can take them down quite easily. And you know, there are some quick fixes. You know, a lot of our, you know, a lot of our radars, uh, the the software for those radars were not really designed uh, to detect low, slow, and small uh, airborne platforms. And now they've been modified to do that. So I, I think you're in a situation now where you're you're seeing the predominance of a new weapon, the machine gun. And there's going to be a development of a, you know, a new set of defensive capabilities and and, and offensive capabilities that, that are analogous to the tank, maybe, for example. So I see this as, as more of a continuity, you know, in, in, in war and the development of a new capability that will be followed by countermeasures. Uh, but, but of course, you know, drones are not the only aspect of what is sort of lifting the veil uh, or parting the curtain in war and allowing forces to see the other quite clearly. You have low Earth satellites, for example, and other means. Uh, I mean, even soldiers' use of social media, or or now Russians operating in and among uh, the Ukrainian population, and how susceptible they are to the app that the Ukrainians had developed to report on Russian positions. So I think we are in a, in an era of increasing transparency of the battlefield, and we have to keep that in mind as we design future forces and and, and their capabilities. One thing that strikes me about this war is the the, the greater accuracy uh, of weaponry when there is this much uh, higher quality of uh, reconnaissance and intelligence. And if if you had to kind of characterize the war in, in one way, it would be 
technology is making the weapons more accurate and therefore the casualties uh, of the fighting forces higher. And this was a point you already made, HR. I, I, I would estimate that pretty much all of that initial invasion force of February 2022 uh, is now either dead or uh, are wounded and no longer capable of fighting. That's an amazing thought, considering that we saw much, much lower casualty rates in the wars uh, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. This is a really bloody war. And you have to feel a lot of empathy with those Ukrainian uh, soldiers who are mounting this offensive with insufficient air power uh, on their side and tremendous exposure uh, to Russian countermeasures. Uh, this is a truly heroic offensive. And uh, I hope you're right about the breakthrough. It would be good timing if it were to happen right now, because right now uh, there is a negotiation going on about uh, Ukraine's future relationship with NATO. And I just wanted to get your thoughts, also yours, John's, because this is a real kind of tough question. Should Ukraine join NATO? There are those who say that that very question kind of was the start of the war itself. I don't agree with that, but the argument's been made. Interestingly, Prigozhin didn't agree with it either, but we'll leave that to one side. Of all people, Henry Kissinger has changed his position on this. He was very much against Ukraine joining NATO back in the day, but he's now been arguing for some months that Ukraine has earned NATO membership with its extraordinary uh, heroic defense of its own territory. Where are you on this question that's currently being debated at Vilnius? It doesn't look like Ukraine's going to get NATO membership anytime soon, but I'd really welcome your thoughts, HR, and also yours, John. Well, I, I think it, it was important, and I, I was a bit of a disappointment not to not to establish a timeline and a really clear path to membership in NATO. I think it's quite clear that Ukraine now has, has developed a quite capable armed force and uh, is fighting in the interest not only of Ukraine but other countries that have been under the threat of 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 a, a revanchist Russia for quite some time, including the Baltic states and those in Eastern Europe who have been some of the greatest champions, obviously, of Ukraine's effort to 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 defend itself. But of course, NATO is an organization that requires 100% unanimity. We saw that with the, the long delayed accession of, of Sweden uh, into NATO. So this is something that's going to take time. I would like to see the U.S. lead more. It was disappointing for me to hear to hear President Biden saying, well, there isn't consensus. OK, well, you know, we're the United States. Darn it. You know, uh, let, let's help forge that consensus. And I do think it is in the U.S. interest to have that clear path. Of course, it's impractical now. Uh, impractical now to uh, to to admit Ukraine immediately, but I do think it, it would just to bolster the morale of Ukrainians. Uh, it would be important, I think, at this stage to provide a clearer path than that that which was provided at the at the latest uh, NATO summit. John, it's kind of remarkable that the U.S. is the dominant member of NATO. That the U.S. Uh, has contributed far more to Ukraine's uh, defense of its territory than any other NATO member. I think I worked out that uh, the US uh, commitments to Ukraine are seven times more than the next largest nation state. And even if you add together all the EU countries and the EU institutions, the US's commitments are still 15% more. So surely the US is in a position to say, we're doing this. Do you think the US should be exerting its its muscle power a bit more to get Ukraine into NATO? Or, or was this compromise the, the, the rational one for Joe Biden to make? The US has not been, I mean, we've been supporting Ukraine, but sort of still enough to not have them lose, but not enough to let them win. 
So um, it doesn't look like we're really pushing on that. I, I, there was a good joke, uh, you know, Ukraine will now be the only country required to defeat Russia on its own before it's allowed to join NATO, <laughs> uh, which is a little sad on, on where we are. Zelensky also told the great joke about how, uh, you know, two people are talking in Odessa and say, you know, 200,000 Russians are done. Oh, where's in the fight with NATO? Where's NATO? NATO hasn't showed up yet. <laughs> but this is, I, I think this is important because we are slowly realizing this is NATO's war. This is our war. This is not just Ukraine's little border fight with the Soviet Union. So, you know, it's clear what's got to happen. No, they can't come in right now because there is an Article 5 and NATO isn't ready to realize it's our war yet and start fighting. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it would be nicer to say, here's the process. We will help you more with this war when this war is won. You're part of us, which is clearly where it needs to go. So you you did one of those things that we all do periodically. You called the Russian Federation the Soviet Union, but that's yeah, good. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's good because it allows me to to, to take a step back and uh, before we wrap up this segment of the show to think about how Cold War II is going. Because I've been arguing, I think, for five years now that we're kind of in Cold War II, and this time it's it's China rather than the Soviet Union that's on the other side, and we should probably think about the war in Ukraine as being a bit like the Korean War at the beginning of uh, Cold War One, uh, And it seems to have reached a similar kind of stage. It's gone from the, the dynamic war of movement to a, a war of attrition. But, but if you step back and ask how Cold War II is going, I'm going to cut some slack to the Biden administration. I think they've had a few wins recently that aren't trivial and we should acknowledge. Uh, for example, you just mentioned HR, the Turks were persuaded to put aside their veto and let Sweden join NATO. Finland already joined. The enlargement of NATO was definitely not one of Vladimir Putin's war aims. Uh, I'm also uh, struck by the extent to which uh, the Prigozhin mutiny dealt a real blow to Putin's credibility as a leader, even if it seems as if Prigozhin is, is negotiating with Putin this week. They seem to have had a meeting in Moscow or somewhere in Russia, which is certainly not a sign of Putin's dominance at this point. So there have been wins. The big question is, how is it going with China? So Janet Yellen just made a trip. I guess you saw that, John. A Treasury Secretary was in Beijing doing quite a bit of bowing, I thought, uh, in uh, at least one of her meetings. But in a way, this is the substance of the US-China relationship right now, because the US is kind of doing what we might call economic warfare in China by restricting Chinese access to semiconductors. And the Chinese respond by saying, right, well, we're going to restrict our exports of critical minerals. If it's an economic war that's going on, gentlemen, who's winning it at this point, the US or China? HR, do you want to go first? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't, I think the US is, is winning it in terms of at least coming to the recognition that, you know, that giving the authoritarian regime in, in, uh, in China a course of power over our economy is a bad idea. And so I'm, I'm in favor of the of the measures that have been taken to make our supply chains more resilient, less reliant on China. China's taking advantage of really our, our poor uh, policies of the past, right? Not recognizing the dangers associated with this. And this is not unprecedented in terms of, uh, of Chinese export restrictions on upstream components and minerals critical to microelectronics, for example. Remember, Japan uh, really fell uh, prey uh, to... to uh, to the to CCP coercion in I think 2012 uh, or so at a time when they were over 90% reliant on certain minerals uh, from from China now they're they've reduced that reliance to I think around 50% or so 
So, and that's about the same time as the U.S. reopened a mine here in the United States for for rare earths. And so, we have to, I think, continue to recognize how important it is for us to to make those supply chains more resilient, so we compete more effectively, and then also to recognize that it's actually China's plan to decouple. I mean, under under Xi Jinping, he wants to create, and he's going to fail, I think, but he's, he's trying to create this dual circulation economy in which he creates. A really coercive power over over the United States and others because of reliance on China for for manufacturing, but as well as for critical upstream components for, for example, the energy transition, while he insulates uh, China from any kind of economic or financial consequences for Chinese aggression. So I I think this is this should be a wake up call, you know, in terms of the the Chinese export controls. I don't think anybody's winning or, or losing yet, but I think we've won in terms of finally recognizing uh, that that it was a grave mistake. Uh, to give the CCP coercive power over our economy. So John, we're almost out of time and we need to go to the lightning round. And I know you're just basically against these kind of economic war type (laughs) things, but let me ask you a specific question. Uh, Jake Sullivan has recently introduced de-risking into his vocabulary, and that's kind of the alternative to decoupling, which is clearly a less drastic change in the relationship between the US and China. Do you buy the idea that we can de-risk without decoupling? Fancy words. Look, uh, you win an economic war when the other side changes its policy in response to your pressure. They're not. They're not doing that. So, uh, the an economic war is like that. Those scenes in the in the fight movies where the guy says, "This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, Kabak or something." That's <laughs> right. Well, that that's the way it is. You know why? Yes, they are uh, doing some some good things, but we still have Trump tariffs on steel. There's no no economic. You know what is the economic? That just that hurts us more than it hurts them, and we're still doing that kind of stuff. So so I, I disagree that we are winning the economic war in that sense. Although we you know we are taking some important, the small targeted national security oriented things fine, but winning an economic war is about shooting yourself in the foot, and and he shoots himself in the foot. At least you try to get him to change, and they it, it is very seldom. The countries change policy because of economic pressure. If I could just make a quick prediction, though, Neil, I think what's next is restrictions on cloud computing access. Because what we've done is been able to try to, we, we've been trying to restrict uh, the PLA's access, so the, the Chinese defense community's access to to the highest end uh, computing power, uh, but they're still accessing that, that kind of computing power you know, through the cloud. So I think that'll those will be the next actions you'll see from a regulatory perspective. In the U.S., there's a theme to all of this that I want to tie together, and that theme is is reputation. Why is it important to win in Ukraine? Well, I, I think uh, pulling out of Afghanistan was a lot of the reason why uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, and what we do in Ukraine will determine a lot. That will determine a lot how aggressive the PRC is towards Taiwan. Why is the Fed going to keep raising interest rates? Because they know these lessons of foreign policy. They know that their reputation. Uh, for is at stake for keeping inflation low, and they don't want to lose that reputation. Reputations matter, and that's like the most that's the most important deterrence. So HR has given us a slogan for a future episode: "Hey, you get off of my cloud." Could be the theme tune of the next round of U.S. economic measures against China. That's my cue to switch to the lightning round. Lightning. And it's a summer special uh, lightning round. We are going to talk about what we do in the holidays. Uh, And we're going to start with one of the great American dilemmas. Beach 
or mountains. Uh, you might have guessed, uh, if you know my backgrounds uh, as a regular viewer, that I am in the mountains as we speak. I have retreated to Montana, where there's a beautiful, cool breeze blowing to mitigate the heat of summer. I'm guessing at least two of my colleagues are closer to the ocean in California. Okay, uh, HR, are you are you a staunch beach man? I know you like the beach, uh, but do you ever kind of sneak off to the mountains to cool down? <laughs> Well, hey, I was I was just in Ketchum, Idaho, beautiful place, uh, but I do prefer the beach. And you know, I'm a paddleboarding enthusiast, and actually, you know, I prefer the beach because I get to bump into Neil there. Actually, my daughter bumped into you there in Newport Beach recently, and and you know, you can't see Neil Ferguson in a speedo in the mountains. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm a beach guy. <laughs> well, I have to say, I swim in the mountains too, uh, <laughs> even though the water in some of these uh, ponds and lakes in Montana is still quite chilly. John, beach or mountains? I'm uh, when I was a kid, I was a beach guy, but now I'm a mountain guy. Uh, all, all of my favorite outdoor activities are mountains, and I love the clarity of the air, the beauty of the view, the the refreshing calm that comes from from the wonderful scenery, as well as all of my uh, great outdoor exploits. Okay, next question: America v the rest of the world. Where should you spend the summer? I'll go first on this one. I I think the American summer is the best summer, and. Of course, being British where it rains half the time, it's not surprising I think that. But I've tried summer elsewhere in France, in Italy, in Greece. The American summer is the best summer. Anyone want to disagree? No, I won't disagree, especially, you know, California. Okay, we're, we're always bagging on California, right? Because, because it's so poorly governed. But hey, you can't beat the weather. I'm an East Coast guy, you know, and we would go to the we would go down the shore from Philadelphia is the vernacular, you know. But but you know, there's a quite quite a bit of humidity still on the East Coast. I mean, California beaches, I mean, you you can't you can't be a California mountains for that matter, you know. So so anyway, I I love I love summer in California. I go California mountains, uh, Colorado mountains uh, are wonderful beaches. Uh, surfing, Cape Cod's lovely. Yeah. And, and the places I love to go in the world, I love to go to Europe, but it's such a horde of tourists in the summer and all the Europeans are gone that if you want to go there, go there at some other time of the year. Yeah, let me just also enter a, a mention for the East Coast late summer. The time to go to New England to the shore is actually late in the summer. And if you can stick around past Labor Day, that's actually the best time there. Okay, uh, music now. Uh, the ultimate summer song. What are you listening to, gentlemen? HR is legendary for his music recommendations, often seen as retro by the younger generation. What's uh, what's uh, what's playing in your earbuds these days, HR? Okay, I'm going to go retro, retro to to Gershwin's "Summertime." Okay, oh, it's a, it's beautiful. a I mean great great uh, aria that, that he composed for Porgy and Bess. It's performed, I think, in 25,000 different versions of it, you know, beginning with uh, Abby Mitchell uh, in, the, in the beginning, but Billie Holiday in the 30s, and then Ella Fitzgerald and, and uh, Louis Armstrong performing together, Janis Joplin in the 60s, B.B. Uh, Seaton did a, a reggae version of it. And then, but I think the, the version, a really beautiful version is on YouTube. You can find it by Nadine Benjamin, who's a, a trained opera singer. And it's just, it's 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 a great american tune you know summertime and the living is easy but of course it's about it's about black americans at a time when living was not easy but it gets to kind of the the stoicism and the determination to overcome obstacles but hey as a philadelphian you know and as general funkenstein i have to also recommend a more recent summertime 
And that of, that, of course, I'm talking about Will Smith's version that he did with uh, with DJ Jazzy Jeff uh, called Summertime, which I also recommend the YouTube video because it's set in the, in the center of the universe, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you know, and and uh, and instead of summertime uh, and, and, and the living is easy, it's summertime, 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 time to set back and unwind. So but I just thought I'd bookend these two summertimes. So hard to follow that, John. Uh, got anything? <laughs> Impossible to follow that. You know, my tastes are nowhere near as 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 well refined as HR's. You know, when you're when you're going to summer vacation, you want nostalgia. When you go to the to the beach in uh, LA, you got to put on the Beach Boys. You go hiking in Colorado, got to put on that old John Denver. We're showing how old we are. And my favorite of all, I'm, I'm a big James Taylor fan. Summer's here. I'm for that. Uh, and, and imagine yourself on Cape Cod with it, with your cold beer and your and your hat. <laughs> Ferguson's have a completely different approach. Summer is when I let the kids choose the music, and I've been educated so well by my kids over the years. I can remember driving around uh, in uh, New England or was it Long Island, listening to Bismarcky, thanks to my daughter Freya. This year, uh, the youngsters Thomas and Campbell have created a playlist which is really uh, blowing my mind because they've discovered rock and roll. And Green Day is our current favorite. We're listening to The Jesus of Suburbia, which is a wild and amazing uh, piece of, of rock music. Uh, so yeah, I, my tip to everyone listening who's a boomer uh, like us old guys is, uh, let the kids choose the music in the summer. You might actually learn something. Uh, we are fast approaching uh, the end of the show, uh, and I think uh, that rules out the summer reading recommendations that we were thinking of giving you. We'll save that for uh, for the next time. I think that's about it for this episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back soon with a new conversation. If you're worried about missing out on any of our content, especially in the summer when we kind of don't keep to an entirely regular schedule, uh, then you should subscribe to the show. And you should also take advantage of the opportunity to leave comments as we actually read them. And very often your comments and questions inspire content on uh, the show. Don't forget to give John and HR as many stars as is possible. Uh, they too have Twitter accounts. Uh, if uh, Twitter is still a thing in your life and you haven't gone over to Threads or some other rival establishment. And don't forget to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report which keeps you abreast of all that's going on at our fine institution. And there's a lot even in summertime. That's it. On behalf of John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, and all of us here at the Hoover Institution, as well as in Montana, we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Take care. Enjoy the summertime. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.